Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Uh, so it's a great privilege to be here with you, uh, and this topic on apologetics is really, really important for us. And so uh, I'm going to look at both texts that were kind of suggested by the uh, by the institute, which is First Peter 3, 15 and 16, and then in Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at kind of two questions. What is apologetics? And then specifically, what is cultural apologetics? And what we're going to do is we're going to see a little bit about how Peter kind of defines it, which will be a little bit of a bridge to what you all have been doing all year uh, in the fellows program. And then looking at how Paul applies that as he's out in Athens in a culture that is very unfamiliar with the scripture. We'll see a lot of resonance there and kind of talk through that. And then I'm going to recommend a few resources at the end. And there'll be time for questions as we're going along. You want to ask something? Raise your hand, uh, shout out, and we'll do that. So uh, let's begin in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Notice here, this is uh, you know God's word to us. And Peter tells us in verse 15, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And the, the word answer there, that's as the NIV translates it, is the word uh, apologia, from which we get apologetics. Uh, and it originally meant to basically defend something, to, to give a defense of something. So we are defending the faith, not trying to protect it, but in the sense of exactly what it says here, we're trying to give an answer, that people have questions regarding the Christian faith, and we're trying to help them understand the faith. And it's important to understand here, if you notice what Peter tells us, there are people who are, you know, apologists professionally, and they travel, and they might give lectures, or they might, you know, engage in debate. But that's not really the main call of apologetics. Notice here, Peter just says it's not primarily a public debate or a lecture, but people that you and I know start asking questions about the faith, why we have the hope that we have, and then we, in personal conversation, are engaged with them to be able to answer their questions. And so notice here as well that Peter's call is not to a few people. This is very important for us. This is not something that just professional apologists do, or, you know, we have pastors who do that. All Christians are called to the task of apologetics. There's nothing in this passage that is directed to a specific group of Christians. It's all believers. Peter says, if you're a believer, you should be ready. You need to be prepared to explain and defend the faith. You need to be ready to give an answer to people regarding what it is we believe and why we believe it. Now, here in the text, he goes through several things that are what I would call the basic parts of apologetics. So again, just to kind of, we're, we're kind of getting the big picture, and then we're going to dive into the cultural part. First thing notice is apologetics is built upon our personal walk with Christ. He says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. He's actually quoting there from uh, back in Isaiah. I think it's chapter 8 is where he's actually getting this from. And so apologetics 
begins with my own personal submission to the Lordship of Christ in my own life. Okay? Uh, apologetics has to begin there. So what you've been doing in the fellows program, of course, growing in your discipleship, learning more about the faith, hopefully what that's doing for us is stirring up a deeper desire to know and walk with Christ. It's never left at just an intellectual uh, proposition. And I say that as somebody who I love reading, I love studying, I love, you know, my wife laughs at me, I love reading Greek and digging in and doing all that. But if it doesn't work down to a personal passion for Christ, something's falling short. And so the first point that I would say there in our personal walk of Christ is I cannot commend what I do not cherish. I'm not going to get anywhere in defending the faith if I don't first cherish Jesus Christ. If I'm not having a continual uh, desire to know him better and to continue walking with him, I'm going to be ineffective in commending the faith. That's true if you think about it in every area of life. I mean, I've had the privilege now to be married to my wife. We're coming up on 37 years. We were just looking at what we're going to be doing for our anniversary this year. I'm far more in love now than I was 37 years ago because we were young and stupid and didn't know what we were doing 37 years ago, right? Now we've been together. We actually know each other. It certainly changes, but I cherish my wife. And if you know me very well, you're going to hear me talk about my wife and how much I love my wife. And I can commend her. In fact, I can commend marriage even to people because I cherish my own wife. It would be fake if I were trying to, you know, say how much I love her and I really did love her. Well, the same thing is true here. We cannot commend what we don't cherish. First thing in every aspect of the Christian life is our personal walk with Christ. Second thing is apologetics is built upon my own growth in the faith. Notice here that he says, you know, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. So Peter here is saying, look, you, you've got to have this personal relationship with Jesus where he's set apart as your Lord, where you're walking with him as your Lord. But you've also got to go through a task of preparation. You have to know what you believe, and you need to know why you believe it. Because the thing is, is there are these questions coming. And First Peter, make no mistake, these are hostile questions that are coming. The entire letter of First Peter is written to a group of Christians who are suffering real persecution, okay? And so these are difficult questions that are coming, and Peter's telling you, you got to be ready. Don't get caught when the conversation starts and you're like, I wish I had thought about this and gotten ready. Peter says, go ahead and get ready now. Be ready. He's not necessarily talking about having a canned response and a certain phrase, but he's saying you need to know what you believe, and you need to know why you believe it. So I cannot commend what I do not know. If I go back to the example I used with my wife, and you said, oh, so you really love your wife? Tell me why you love your wife. Well, I just do. Well, what is it about her? I just love her. It's not very convincing. There's nothing there. There's no content. If we're going to con uh, commend the Christian faith, we have to understand what it is that we believe. It's not just that I really, really believe in Jesus. Well, who do you believe he is? What do you believe he's done? Well, what is your understanding of humanity, of, of sin, of redemption and salvation? And, and who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he, is he both? How does do we understand the basic faith? That's obviously what you've been learning a lot about this year. So you're doing that step right now. You are being prepared uh, to 
being able to commend the faith by what you know, and I commend you for doing that. That's an excellent uh, start. Thirdly, notice that apologetics is built upon consistent, godly character. So Peter says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now remember again, these Christians are suffering. But there's something in their response to the suffering that is causing the people around them to say, how do you still have hope? What's going on here? This is dealing with their character. It's evident no matter the circumstance. And so our conversation, even with those with whom we disagree, he goes on, notice, because he brings up and he says that you have to do this with gentleness and respect, again, bringing up character, okay? He's saying, so your character is evident, it's prompting questions, and then even if they are hostile in their questioning, you respond with gentleness and respect. Can I say for just a moment, this is a great need today. We live in an age of rage. Um, I got on social media years ago because people in our congregation were getting on social media. I, I still have a Facebook account. I, I guess I technically have a Twitter account, so to be honest, I found Twitter such a cesspool. I couldn't even fathom why I would spend any of my time doing it, and I marvel that people do because all it is is an invitation to have the whole culture start shouting at you. Um, the, the tone right now is so bad. Christians could be ones who stood out. We're not being that way right now. We usually get down, and not to get too graphic, but it, we, we get down and we look like a bunch of monkeys flinging feces at one another, is what it looks like. Peter says that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to have character. Even if they're not, we answer with gentleness and respect. And I would step aside for just a second and say, because no matter who that person is, no matter how much they are angry about the Christian faith, no matter what they're saying, they're created in the image of God. They're an image bearer of God. And therefore, we need to speak with gentleness and respect towards them. So we're to have good behavior, even if others are speaking uh, evil about us. Now, let me be clear, this isn't about perfection. Everybody has times where they lose their cool. In fact, sometimes it was when I, I remember being a midshipman, I had, I had the privilege that I led a couple of roommates uh, at the Naval Academy, and also when I was a young Marine, I got to see several of my roommates become believers by living it, and it was certainly not because of perfection. But one roommate, one roommate that became a believer kept making me so angry, I kept threatening to throw him out windows, and you know, he, he would really get me angry. But I would come back and apologize as well. And I was, I was working, I was growing, and they were observing godly character. The same thing happens, of course, in our families. And having raised four kids, and we had four kids in four and a half years, so I had the wonderful experience of four teenagers of one. <laughs> there were times flaws in my character became evident for about a decade. So, um, you know, but, but even then, apologizing being clear, getting down and saying, look, what I just said or did was wrong, and I confess it. It's not about perfection, but it is about a consistency of character, because I cannot commend what I do not live. If I'm claiming to cherish it, and I understand it, but it's not working out in my conduct, that undermines everything that I'm saying. So that's the point of what apologetics basically is, okay? I'm cherishing Jesus Christ. I'm uh, 
understanding the Christian faith, and then I'm preparing myself, you know, to, to share that, and then I'm living in a consistently godly manner, which is opening up opportunities for me to be able to do that. Now, now we're going to move over and say, well, how does that work in a culture, and in particular for us, in a culture that is becoming increasingly disconnected from the Christian faith? There were assumptions that could be made even 30 or 40 years ago that can no longer be made, much less assumptions that could be made 100 or 150 years ago, okay? And there are even assumptions living up here. As I said, I'm from down south. One of the apologetic tasks where I grew up in Georgia is first off convincing half the people that they're not really Christians when they think they're actually Christians. Because everybody where I grew up in Georgia is a Christian. I mean, it doesn't matter what you are, but you're a Christian. That's just the way it is, you know? Um, so how do we practice it in our culture? Now, this is in Acts chapter 17, and I won't take the time to read the whole passage, but Paul is in Athens, and he's waiting for his companions to come. And he starts walking around the, uh, the city of Athens. And what we read first in Acts 17, 17, is we're told, so he reasoned in the synagogue. You know, some of that is the, the, you know, Peter talking about giving a reason for the hope that we have. He reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Notice Luke's telling us right up front, there's two different groups Paul's dealing with. He's in synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, which means they already believe the Bible's the word of God. They believe that the God of Israel is the true God. They understand God's covenant nature and all of these kinds of things. And they even believe that a Messiah is going to come. Paul there has a whole lot of common ground to start with. But as we're going to see when he goes out into the marketplace, he can't assume any of that. And he's going to take a very different approach. So he's in these two very different contexts. And if you, if you really want to dive into it, what you can do, because Luke doesn't tell us what he said in the synagogue there, because he's already given us an example. If you read Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, and then compare it with what we're going to go through today, you'll see the difference between preaching to Jews and God-fearing Greeks who already believe the Bible, where God, the God of Israel, all of these kinds of things, and then Paul dealing with people who have no context for any of that. And you'll see they're very, very different sermons. In Acts 13, it's a direct appeal to Scripture. It assumes the truth of God's word, knowledge of God's covenant. As you're going to see as we dive in here in Acts 17, there's no direct appeal to Scripture. Paul doesn't say, as Isaiah the prophet said, because everybody there would say, who's Isaiah the prophet? And why do I care what he says? In fact, Paul's going to appeal to their own prophets and poets is what he's going to do. He doesn't assume the audience believes in the truth of God's word as a whole. He assumes little to no knowledge of God's uh, covenant promises and plans. So, in other words, Paul is trying to proclaim the same message, but he has two very different audiences, and so he's going to adopt a, a, a different uh, posture in how he approaches. He's, he's still using actually the same methods. He's proclaiming, he's preaching, he's having conversations, but the way he's going to couch it, the terms he's going to use are going to be tailored to the audience that he's working with. And that's really what cultural apologetics is about. That if you had lived and were defending the faith 60 years ago in the rural South, that's going to sound very different than it does in 2021 in Annapolis, Maryland. It's just going to be a very different context. 
So let's dive in and look at what Paul's example of cultural apologetics. First off, notice what Paul does before we're even told in verse 17 that he started doing this reasoning. In verse 16, we see that Paul's studying the culture of Athens. Paul's heard about Athens his whole life, but he's never been there, apparently. And so it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul's just walking around. He's paying attention, and right off he notices Athens has idols everywhere. This is, this is a long way from Jerusalem where you're not seeing any idols. Idolatry has been solved among the, the people of Judah. And so Paul is looking at this, and notice it's painful to him. And the fact is, if you and I study our culture, it can be painful to see, hear, and understand what's happening around us. But it's essential. You, you can't share with people that you really don't understand. If you can't enter into their understanding uh, of how life works. So we've got to begin by taking time to listen, read, and observe our culture so we're understanding what's shaping it and to understand the questions that the culture is asking. So there's the whole task in apologetics in the understanding of the Christian faith. This, in a cultural apologetics, I also have to study and understand our culture. Now, you might think that, well, you know, I'm an American. I know American culture. But I want to encourage you, you are a missionary. And if you were setting out to go to some different context culture, you would be working to learn the language you would be working to learn the customs. You'd be working to understand why they do what they do, even if they don't remember why they do what they do, where that came from. We need to be doing the same thing today. Because as the culture is splitting off, we're starting to speak two very separate languages. Okay, we really are. But we have to understand and be able to speak the language of the people around us. We have to know what's motivating them. We have to listen carefully to what questions they're asking, what words they're using, okay? Because that becomes very, very important for us. Secondly, Paul then, once he's kind of observed what's going on, he's walked around, he's seen all of this. It's very different context than what he was used to back in Israel. He starts connecting their culture with the truth. He doesn't come out guns blazing and say, let me tell you, everything is wrong with all you crazy people. There's only one God. That, that's not Paul's approach. He begins by saying, notice in verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, that's, that's kind of nice talk because what he's saying is you got idols everywhere. I mean, we already know Paul's distressed. He's not happy about this. But he's saying, you know, it's a good thing that you're religious people. Okay, he's trying to build a bridge with them. They're idolaters, it grieves them, but what he's getting at is, look, here's a good thing. You were made to worship. And you're still apparently in touch with that. Because there's idols everywhere. Everywhere I look, there's idols and temples. So, so there is a point of connection here between us. And so it's important for us, we've got to begin with where people are to build a bridge to the truth. The, the point in a conversation is not to come out guns blazing, because all you do then is you just shut the conversation down, right from the get-go. And let me say this is important as well. I say this as a pastor, but I remind our church occasionally. 
when I stand up and preach tomorrow morning, I'm preaching in the synagogue context. So I tell people, this is not what my conversation with your unbelieving neighbor would look like. I'm just here speaking the truth and making all kinds of assumptions because it's the church gathered for worship. That's different than what we're doing there. So Paul here, you know, I can be very, very blunt on Sunday mornings, in other words. But when I'm with my neighbors, I've got to try and find out what that point of connection is and how I can establish it so we're now getting a bridge to get from where they are to the truth. So Paul says, hey, you all realize we're created to know God. You're religious, and that's good, and I'm going to build a bridge off of that. Paul then builds on their culture to proclaim God and the truth. So he says, you're very religious. Well, here's why. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul said, I not only found that you're religious, I found a specific segue that I can use. You are speaking this, you are saying this, you're saying that there's this unknown God out there. You've admitted in your own objects of worship, there is a God you don't know about. Well, I'm his messenger. I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is that you obviously would like to know something about because you even have uh, an idol that is set up to him. So notice here, again, gentleness and respect. Paul here is not blasting them. He's not being angry with them. He's trying to build a bridge. So he's moving from their acknowledgement that there's this God they don't know. He's going to proclaim this one true God to them. So a key part of apologetics for us is oftentimes just asking questions. What is it people believe? What is it that's driving them? And then being able to engage with them in conversations as we find out what it is they really believe. Don't assume we know what they believe, but actually find out from that particular individual. Because one of the problems we have, even when we're speaking here of cultural apologetics, we all realize in America, there's not a culture. There are many cultures. There are many cultures here in Annapolis right now. Okay, that's just the reality of the way it is. So we first off have to find kind of what are the questions. Now, let me step aside for just a second and say, that can sound daunting, like, well, how am I going to study a thousand cultures? The main study is to know the Christian faith. And then we're going to find out the questions people are asking, the way they're kind of operating and think, okay, how do I build a bridge from what I really, really know to where they're at? And by asking some questions, by poking and prodding at some things. I encourage you, you're in the C.S. Lewis Institute. C.S. Lewis was a master at this. And I don't know if you're aware, uh, actually, a couple years ago, I each year tend to pick one great thinker and read through a lot of their works. And I did C.S. Lewis a couple years ago. So I read through most of what Lewis wrote in a year. It's a great exercise. If you haven't done it, I really encourage it. And one of the things I discovered was C.S. Lewis virtually never read the newspaper. He didn't try to keep up with current events. Now, he understood his culture so well, but he understood the culture because he knew what human beings were like. And so it really didn't matter what the current event was because he said most of this stuff, people are going to forgotten 90 days from now or six months from now. So I'm not going to spend my time on that. I'm going to spend my time really understanding humanity. And then I'm going to be able to answer the questions 
because they may pose them in a little bit different way, but it's the same basic questions that we keep coming back to. So this isn't that we have to understand the thousand cultures that are out there, but we're asking questions to find out how people are actually operating on the key issues of life. And Paul does that here. He says, hey, you've admitted there's an unknown God. There's something you don't know about God. I'm going to use that to now build a bridge and answer questions. So C.S. Lewis is incredible at that. Francis Schaeffer is another guy that I strongly recommend uh, as doing the same thing, doing it very, very well. Uh, and there's a whole variety of ways of getting into that. We'll talk about those in a few minutes. So notice then Paul goes on and he gives key points of the biblical narrative, but he starts to include some contrast with the current culture. So he doesn't just leave it there. He's going to now start proclaiming the truth but he's going to start saying, but I've got to make some corrections about your culture. I, you're very religious. You've admitted there's a God you don't know. However, there are some problems. Notice in verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Well, of course, what do the Greeks have all over their cities? Temples for their gods to live in. And they even stick the idol up. Uh, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now, see, here's where we start to have a, a, a contrast because, of course, the Greek gods, and there are many of them, all starting to speak about the singular God, but also the Greek gods are kind of in this play and this struggle with humans. They've kind of got the upper hand, but they also need humans to do things. You know, they're always trying to control. Paul's saying that's not the way God is. God doesn't need you to build a temple. He doesn't live in that temple. In fact, there's nothing you can do to serve God. He gives everything to you. You're not giving back to him. So he's starting to make this contrast with them uh, to point this out. I mean, giving them a much more transcendent view of God than what they're used to. And this is where, again, when we know the Christian faith and we look at our culture, we're going to have to start critiquing things. Because our culture has a certain viewpoint. For example, there's a lot of commonality between us today and the first century. The church is basically back where we were born. We've got the same sexual ethic going on. I'm going to go over that in a couple of minutes as a specific example. Uh, we've, we've reduced God down. Our culture's understanding of God is kind of the doddering old dude sitting up. We have to to be able to critique that. We need to be able to speak that, that that's not the biblical God. Uh, we, we have to help them to understand why their understanding of God is insufficient. Many people, when I listen to their understanding of God, my answer is, well, I wouldn't believe in that God either. I agree with you. I don't believe in that God. That God needs help. Okay? But that's not the true God. And see, that's what Paul's kind of doing here. So we have to sometimes clear away misconceptions people have regarding who God is and even what it means to be a Christian. I found all kinds of things that get pulled up into people's minds through the years that being a Christian means you do X, Y, and Z or you don't do A, B, and C. And I'm like, that's, that's not an accurate representation of what it means to be a Christian at all. It's not an accurate representation. So, we sometimes have to start critiquing that. Now notice to do this, Paul is conversant with Greek poets and culture, and he quotes them. So he's already started making the critique, but what he's going to say is, but you know what? Even in your own culture, you've made this critique. 
Even in your own culture, this truth has been there. So he quotes there in uh, Acts 17, 28, says, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul here is quoting from uh, a, a Greek philosopher named Epimenides, who had written around 600 BC, I think it was, and another one named Erratus, who was actually a Stoic. And Paul's speaking to Stoics and Epicureans here. So he's kind of saying, hey, I can quote one of your guys. And I'm going to show you that your own guys said what I said. That notes, we live and move and have our being in him. We're, we're not serving him. And uh, we are his offspring. Now, what's interesting here, both of these writers were obviously not Christians. They were both from before the time of Christ. They were not God-fearers. Uh, they were actually pagan polytheists. Eratus' poem, we, with We Are His Offspring, is We Are the Offspring of Zeus. But it's, it's, it's a pagan worship song. There's no other way to put it. Paul knows it. Which, first off, a lot of Christians today, we need to live holy and we need to live distinct, but that does not mean we should be so completely unaware of the culture that we can't speak. Paul knows he knows their music. He knows their pop culture. He knows their references. He knows what's going on so that he can quote them and show, hey, this is the kind of thing you all are talking about. Have you really thought what that means? Because that says something different than what you're doing over here. And so he's again using it to build this bridge. How can I make a connection? You've heard this. You've all said this before, but that doesn't line up with what you're practicing over here. So how do I try to do it? And so we have to not be so isolated that we don't learn uh, our culture's ideas and the questions that are out there. I encourage you, just along with your other reading, sometimes pick up and just read what's a popular book right now, just to understand what people are thinking. I spend a good deal of time reading things I don't agree with. That, that's just... Because I need to understand what do they believe. And that's every day. I get, I get as much newsfeed information that comes to me that I realize, like, this is probably going to make me angry as I read it. Okay, this is going to be crazy stuff here, but I'm going to read it so I can understand how they're thinking, what they're saying, you know, what, what are the things that are driving people. Because very often, even in our movies and our music, we're, we're throwing out and we're asking questions, we're struggling, we're, we're, we're doing it. And if we can speak that, we can then make a connection. That was one of the things that Francis Schaeffer, for example, was a master at. And people were shocked when this preacher starts quoting from Bob Dylan and you know the Stones and all this kind of stuff. And, and he understood the culture. And he's like, I get why people are doing this. And I will encourage you again in doing that, it's not just to do an aha moment. Schaefer was my guy last year. So I read his entire, everything he wrote. And one of the things that astounded me, I had read some Schaefer before, knew he was a great intellect. He wept in conversations with unbelievers because as he was critiquing the culture and he was predicting, it was crazy to read last year and say, this guy in the 1960s was saying, this is where we were going. And oh boy, was he right. We got exactly where he was going. But he wept over it. It wasn't dancing on him and saying, you bunch of fools. He was weeping, saying, do you see where you're going? This is going to be destruction for you or your children. You're going to destroy yourselves. 
We have to have that heart, but we have to understand. So then Paul finally moves, and I want us to see this. This is kind of the point of where it's all going, is he gets to evangelism. It's not just an interesting conversation. Hey, you got this, I got that, let's chat back and forth. Notice in verse 27 and verse 30 and 31. And remember, this is not in synagogue. This is the equivalent of being down at the dock in Annapolis and hanging out. That's where he's at. It says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And that's where he quotes the poet, you know. Uh, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. And then he comes back in verse 30 and says, Look, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So notice, we've now gone from, you know, hey, you're all very religious, we've got some things in common, to a direct call. That look, God winked at all this, but He's telling you now you got to repent. Repentance is a very strong word. Okay, He's being very, very clear, and He's saying, "But I want you to think, God is reaching out to you. The reason you've got all of this, and I built these bridges, is there's echoes. They're out there. You've been reverberating. You know, one of the things that C.S. Lewis uh, said, and it was actually how Lewis came to faith, was." All the Greek myths and the Norse myths and everything that he loved, which we may look at and say, what does that have to do with the truth? Lewis said, no, they're all echoes of the one true story. They're all echoes. You can see God reaching out to each culture through these myths that they have. Paul's doing the same thing. God's done this so that you would reach out and you would find him. But then he gives the call to repentance, and he calls about coming judgment. Now, is that popular? No. And it actually never has been. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, uh, prophets oftentimes have short lives. <laughs> right? Because, because here's the reality. I mean, a prophet walks along and says, hey, you built that house. It's built wrong. you got to tear it down. And there's two options. You tear it down or you kill the prophet. And what's easier? <laughs> a prophet. It's always easier to kill the prophet. You don't like people saying this, okay? And this is true not only built by, I mean, you know, Socrates in Athens had said, hey, I'm the gadfly. I'm asking questions you all don't like, and you end up having to drink hemlock at the end of the day because people don't like those questions. So the good news is you're in good company. The bad news is it's going to be that way, okay? But we have to move there. Paul doesn't stop because there's no point in establishing this bridge and leaving them and saying, your idolatry is fine. You're on, you're on the path. No, no, you need to repent because there was a right urge, you've taken it in the wrong way. And so I got a call and tell you, you have to repent. There is a coming judgment. And friends, it's essential. Apologetics has to go to evangelism. In other words, in a certain sense, we think of apologetics as being defensive, but we're always, I'm, I'm a prior Marine. Defense is only there to get back on the offense. Okay, we're always on the attack. We're always charging the hill. We're always moving after what we want. That has to be our goal. And so Paul has to tell them. See, they may all be sitting around saying, this is interesting. This is interesting. Then when he comes to this point, we find out they're not too happy with it. 
And notice, he even goes on and he mentions the resurrection. Now, in our culture, resurrection is oftentimes a hopeful idea to people. But in their culture, it was crazy. Because the Greeks, the idea was the immortality of the soul. The, the body was a prison house. And Paul's saying, you got to understand there's a resurrection. Your body's going to be raised. Like, Why would I want my body to be raised? That's like telling you the day I got out of jail, you're putting me back in jail. I don't want that. But see, it's essential Christian truth. This is an area where the culture is very much not in line with biblical truth. And Paul doesn't shy away from the biblical truth. Because the fact is, we are going to be raised. And we are going to stand before God in judgment. And so Paul's including parts that are popular and parts that are not. You and I are going to have to do that with both as we're, as we're talking with people that sometimes people just are open and they're ready to respond. Sometimes we have to put out and just say things that are unpopular in our culture, but we can't shy away from them and we can't fudge the Christian truth. I, I cringe when I watch sometimes on talk shows and stuff and certain Christian preachers or whatever can get up there and they're asked tough questions and then all of a sudden they, you know, back off. Well, God's not really going to judge us. You know, well, the Bible says he is. <laughs> he is actually, but there, there's a lot in there about that. And I know it's not popular and I know the lights are on you, but dude, if you can't handle it, don't get in front of the camera. Don't get up there and say that, okay? Don't don't uh, not be prepared. In fact, I can even say as just a sign, I remember a few years ago, a Christian singer, Jennifer Knapp, and this kind of ties together some things we're talking about, but she had, uh, she at the height of her popularity, she had just stopped singing and went away for years, and nobody really knew why. And then she came back and she said, well, it's because I'm a lesbian. And so, you know, and then she came back out and said, but I've now discovered it's okay. God made me this way and I can do this. And she was on Larry King, and there was a pastor of a mega church, and I almost threw something at the TV that night. Because she said, well, you know, I mean, God said we couldn't eat shellfish in the Old Testament either. And I thought, well, this is easy, man. This is a T-ball. This pastor's going to knock us out of the park. And the guy said, well, God changed his mind. Like, oh my God, did you sleep in seminary when they taught Bible? That is not the answer to the question. Oh my word, we've been answering this question for thousands of years, and that was your answer to her. And again, then if I were on the thing, I'd have to say, Jennifer, if that was my answer, I would agree with you and not him. But he's apparently just angry at you about your sexuality because God apparently just changes. But I'm not willing to believe he changed in this area. The guy was not ready. And in part of it, I'm sure, is the lights are shining and you don't want to say things that are unpopular. But see, Paul does. And we need to understand that the most unpopular thing he said was the resurrection. It doesn't strike us that way, but it did to them. That was insane. That was as unpopular as saying there's going to be a judgment and there's a hell afterwards and it's eternal. That's how it rang in their ears. But Paul says, but, but I'm bound to the gospel. I have no other choice. This is the truth. And, and this is where apologetics was going. It wasn't just a little friendly pet-a-pet. The whole point was for me to get to the gospel. It was for me to put out the call. So 
that's the call. So here's the key points of cultural apologetics. And then what I'm going to do is pick a couple of areas for us to look at in our current culture to think about. So first off, in cultural apologetics, we're tailoring our way of communicating the gospel to our intended audience, speaking in a way that makes the gospel clear to them. Okay, because different cultures, different times, different people have different questions. And so we want to make sure we're answering the questions they're asking. Secondly, to effectively speak to our culture, we have to study it. Yeah, sure. We must tailor our way. And if y'all want, I can even get this out and have an email to y'all. But um, we must tailor our way of communicating the gospel to our intended audience, speaking in a way that makes the gospel clear to them. So when I say tailor, I'm not talking about changing the content in any way. But I'm saying people, for example, I, I just caught a, um, a, a series recently on 2 John, and I taught on 1 John before, and in John, John talks a lot about uh, genuine faith, but what I used was the word authentic, because that's got ring in our culture right now. They want everybody's about what is authentic. The problem is what they mean by authentic and what the scripture means by authentic are two very different things. But so I want to communicate in a way using words they understand. Second, to effectively speak to our culture, we have to study it. Noticing both where it has echoes of the truth and where it's embracing error. And every culture has echoes of the truth. Okay, I've, I've been privileged to travel to a lot of different cultures doing missions work. And so I've been in uh, Niger, West Africa, which is like 98% Muslim, okay? But there are still echoes of the truth. Now, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I come home every time and would hug my wife and daughter and say, I'm so glad you were here and not over there. But they have an understanding there. For example, marriage is taken very, very seriously there. And they believe in one God. And they really, really believe that there is a spiritual world out here. Those are all things that we could use to build a bridge with. Whereas in America, we're not necessarily holding marriage in high regard. We oftentimes act as materialists, as if there is no spiritual world out there. If we do believe in God, well, there's all kinds of gods. And each of God. So every culture has echoes of truth and error. So we've got to understand what they are. Thirdly, when we come to the conversations, and I think next time you ought to be talking about conversational apologetics. And so I'm really saying that's what this largely is. It's not standing up in front of a group and fielding questions. It's really one-on-one -on -one conversations. We want to begin with points of connection with the person. Whatever aspect of the culture they're doing, saying, hey, there's an echo of the truth here. Yes, yes, this is good and true. However, we've eventually got to move on to points that contrast because if they're not a believer, they are denying some essential aspect of the truth. And I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, but let me be really clear here. It is impossible to live any other philosophy of life other than Christianity. They don't work. Because this is not like we've got a philosophy. This is the way God made the world. The, the fundamental reality of the entire universe is the triune God has revealed himself in Jesus. Christ. And if you're living apart from that, there are going to be glaring problems. 
and you will not live consistent. You may say this, but you will not live consistent because human beings are always, we're, we're stamped by God with a certain nature. And we're going to keep pulling back the other way. And so part of our task is trying to help them see that. You know, where, where, where are you kind of getting off here? Where are you not following through? And then finally, it's always got a goal of clear presentation of the gospel uh, and repentance and faith in Christ. So that's kind of cultural politics. Now, before I jump in, I'm going to give a couple of examples here to think through. Uh, and there's a lot of we could pick, but does anybody have any questions on any of that or anything I can repeat? Yeah. You said that Paul didn't change the essential of the gospel, but how come he didn't mention the cross? And I would say one of the things that he's doing here is this is a first conversation and we're told that he's invited back, you know. And so I, I had a friend that used to use the analogy of what he called Great Commission Baseball. One of the things in evangelism that I think is important is giving people what they're ready for at that moment. Uh, in other words, we, we don't necessarily get to everything in a particular conversation. So as soon as Paul mentioned the resurrection, apparently the whole thing starts to kind of devolve right then at the picture you get. And we're told, you know, Dionysius, the Areopagite, uh, converts and some other people. But yeah, he doesn't go directly to the cross. And there's all kinds of biblical aspects of truth. Um, certainly the cross is central, but for example, if I'm, uh, I had a young person I was talking with a year or two ago that is questioning, he's becoming a very strong materialist, which was almost one of the areas I was going to bring up today. I'm not, but it's impossible to live as a consistent materialist. Okay. It's, it's truly impossible. People say they believe it, but then when they go home, and they hold their child that was just born, and you tell them, yes, the synapses are firing, and a certain chemical is going in your blood, and that's all this is. They don't believe that. They don't live that way. Well, I might not go directly to the cross, and I didn't with the young person. I'm trying to say, you're not living the way you say you are living. Because as we talk, you speak as if there actually is love. You speak as if there... Well, maybe there's kind of, you know, and he was trying to fight something. So my whole focus is where are you at? How does that not fit with the biblical thing? Because until I can get to there, you don't, you're, you're saying there is no spiritual reality. So the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross means nothing because you don't believe in a concept such as sin. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, you're saying that if they have a door that's as closed as a bank vault with all the things that turn in the combination. you got to get a crack of daylight. Sure. Right. you you got, you got you got to start where you are. And again, and that's one of the things I think, which is why I think the conversational apologetics that you're always talking about is so important. Our, our, uh, our conversation, you know, we, we have to look for when the doors open. I've been praying. My next door neighbor uh, moved in a couple years ago, and I went up and introduced him, and uh, he said, hi, I'm Muhammad. The wives looked like they were from India, and it turned out he was from up in uh, right Pakistan and India, right in the, the same corner up there. And uh, so then I knew he was a Muslim. So I've been trying to build bridges with him by asking, like, so do you go to mosque? You know, where, where do you go? What do you do? In fact, 
they gave us a Christmas present one year, so I give them Christmas presents, and I give them end of Ramadan presents because I'm just trying to build bridges. But what I didn't start with was the first conversation say, hey, I just want you to know Allah is a demon. <laughs> Not a way to start the conversation. I'm just trying to build bridges with Muhammad, and I pray for him regularly, looking for ways to try and open up. So I think that's what Paul's doing here. And you've got to ask what the person, if their main question is, I'm not even sure that a spiritual world exists, driving straight to the cross, we're answering a question they're not asking right now. We have to then kind of press back and say, okay, well, do you believe in love? You know, do, do, do you believe that there actually is right and wrong? If you do believe there's right and wrong, where do you, where do you believe this comes from? And start the conversation that way with the goal I eventually want to get here, uh, you know, to what we're doing. So I, I'm going to mention in a couple of minutes, you know, but if you look at Mere Christianity, that was C.S. Lewis invited on the radio to kind of defend the Christian faith. But if you notice, he began with really apologetics and trying to lay out a certain thing because what he was saying is nobody's even asking the questions right now in England. He was saying England was becoming very post-Christian. And so he began by saying, okay, let me build these bridges and start asking these questions. And if you remember, you know, in the very first chapter, the very first lecture, which I thought was brilliant, you know, he's just trying to say, well, you say that there's no right and wrong until somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever else. And then suddenly you feel like you've been wrong. Well, why, why is it? You know, so right and wrong is a clue to meaning in the universe. He's going to get to the cross, but he's got to start where they're at. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Other, any so other he's questions? not trying to get them lost before he gets them saved. Yeah, I mean, because they don't know what sin is. And sometimes, look, like I said, and this, and this is no joke. Having, you know, my family's originally from Louisiana and Georgia. They're all Christians, okay? I mean, that, that's what they'll tell you. I know them all, and I'm like, I'm not your judge, but I have severe doubts about all of this, okay? Severe doubts about all this. And that would be my. My entire goal at first is getting them lost, trying to convince them because they're just sure, because they've got this view. It's one of our problems right now in our culture. You see all these things where, you know, the number of evangelicals that say or do X, Y, or Z, and I'm like, a bunch of those people that are calling themselves evangelicals are a thousand miles from the Christian faith. And if you check, they, they have a darkened the door of an assembly of God's people in forever, very often it just means they've got a certain approach to the culture. And so, yeah, sometimes you got to go to people like that. That really is a challenge down south where I'm from is to convince people. Yeah, no, and, I mean, you may even, I mean, I even remember when I first became a young believer, I got saved at 16, and we were a strange family in town because we didn't go to church. And that caused quite a scandal. My dad was kind of the the big boss in the whole town. I was like, you know, everybody goes to church, and you go to the First Baptist Church. That's where everybody goes. And we didn't. <laughs> and then I got saved, and I remember one of the deacons in the church, and you know, I love the church. It does all kinds of things, but this is a deacon. But I'm not too sure about that Jesus being God thing. Yeah. And I, I've been saved like three months, and I was like, well, I'm pretty sure you ought not be a deacon. Then. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, kind of like the doorway coming in here. <laughs> But that was kind of, but if you would have asked them, they were all sure they were believers. Um, and, you know, again, if you would have asked me when I was 15, 
yeah, I mean, I kind of believe there must be a God. I, it, it never made sense to me that there wasn't a God. I didn't know anything about the Gospels. I mean, nothing. But if you had asked me, I'd have said, well, I'm a Christian. Uh, so, yeah, I think sometimes you got to do that. You talk about understanding the culture we live in. It could be overwhelming. Is there, or are there resources? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the back of the page you've got right there. And I'm going to get to those. Yes, I've given you some resources that I found very helpful. Um, so, any other questions before we jump into I'm going to give two examples here on radical relativism and sexual revolution. Talk about specific things. Not so much a, a question, but a comment. Uh, you mentioned your Christianity. Uh, my wife and I are leading a small group in our church on your Christianity. Mm -hmm. And he takes, he actually takes the first seven chapters of the book before he ever even mentions right. Christ and God. And, right. and the people in our group were discussing that, and it was like, well, why? Why isn't he doing that? You have some very strong believers in our group that say, should it should have hit it right out right. of the box? He said, he's addressing a group where most of the people he may be addressing are non-believers. Right. And uh, he is, he's just brilliant mm -hmm. about how he develops that over the course of time yeah. before he introduces and says, okay, here's the Right. Logical conclusion. And, and the, the trick is not, not to critique your friends, but uh, he was invited on to give a few radio lectures and it became one of the most influential books in the history of Christendom. <laughs> most of us don't like that. We don't think about this, you know. So obviously it worked. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I mean, it, it really is brilliant as Lewis did it. And because he took the time then you really are building the case. And I, I don't know if y'all know, but Chuck Colson, uh, who became a well-known, you know, he became a believer by reading Mere Christianity in the midst of the whole Watergate scale and everything else. And Colson actually said, you know, I sat in my car breaking out a cold sweat because the relentless logic of this guy, I thought if I'd ever met him in a courtroom, he'd have sliced me and diced me, you know. But it was because Lewis had taken the time. If he had just jumped out of the gate, Colson would say, oh, I've heard that before. See, and that's part of where it comes in, which is what we got to know in our culture. Are we dealing with people who've heard this before? People who really haven't heard it before? Sometimes it's people who were raised in Christian homes that were not Christian and have created all kinds of baggage. And we've then got to be able to reach out and figure out what it is that we're doing. And that was Lewis looking and saying, this is where England is. And I've got to address it from there. And by the way, you know, he had practiced, thanks be to God, before that, because he was a chaplain for the RAF, and in his estimation, his first couple of attempts in sharing with RAF guys, he needed to learn a few things. Not surprisingly, it's like, well, yeah, you were lecturing as an Oxford Don, mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and now you, you're out sharing with guys who are mechanics on, you know, Spitfires. It might be a little bit different audience, uh, but he learned. And said, okay, these are the questions they're actually asking. So well, why don't we dive in? I'm going to give two examples here just to kind of think through. And again, I could have done materialism is one that I almost threw in here, but for the sake of time, I just picked two of them. And materialism is one. These are kind of deep questions. Some of them. Many of our neighbors don't even, you know, they, they, they try to say they're materialists. But as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, part of what we have to do is ask and really say, are they living consistent with what they're proclaiming? That's one of the big tasks, because if we can start showing people you're saying one thing, but you're living another, then that can start to be a, a way to help them deconstruct 
their supposed philosophy. Because very often what we're doing is our philosophy is meant to be a wall that's protecting you from God. That's what people are trying to do. We're, we're, we're Christ haunted because we're created in the image of God. So I'm creating things to protect me from God. And part of what we're doing in apologetics and evangelism is saying, yeah, but you're not, you're, you're not living consistent here. Let's knock that down. So why are you doing this? And we keep driving back. So let me give two areas. One is radical relativism. Have you heard things like there is no such thing as truth? Or there's no such thing as good and evil? I remember my second son came home from the community college one day, and he was all fired up and said, Dad, I'm becoming a philosophy major. I told him that. I was like, okay, why? And he said, because he was in class, this was in the early 2000s, he was in class, and they had been reading Nietzsche and stuff like that. And he said, everybody is talking about how there is no such thing as good and evil, and all these kids reading it up. And this was shortly after the shooting at Virginia Tech, if you remember down there. And my son said, I got angry. I stood up in class and said, so you're all telling me it was a morally neutral act for that guy to shoot and kill all those people. And a couple of years ago, when they flew the plane into the Twin Towers, that was a morally meaningless act. And my son said, I'm studying philosophy because it's crazy that people are thinking this way. But it's what people say. Okay? Here's a quote. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, when she was receiving an award last year, said, what I know for sure is speaking your truth is the most powerful truth we have. Your truth. And see, what that assumes is you have your truth, and I have my truth. Okay? Now, all of these are appealing to our desire and experience as the arbiter of truth. Because what I'm really wanting to say is I get to decide what's good and right and true and, and all of that. Now, in building bridges, we need to acknowledge as people that we all do have our own unique experiences. We all do have our own unique struggles that we have gone through. And we also can acknowledge that sometimes people have used what they call truth as a weapon to wield to keep people down or to abuse uh, other people, to deny the lived experience of those with less power, crushing them underfoot. And it doesn't hurt the Christian faith for us to acknowledge, you know what, that has actually been the case. And in fact, we can build a bridge there and say, you know what, that's exactly what the biblical prophets did all the time. They pointed out the same exact thing that people were doing that. And in fact, Jesus did it more than anybody else. There's, there's whole chapters where he pronounced most. And by the way, his harshest criticisms were towards religious leaders who were trying to wield truth as a weapon to harm people rather than trying to uh, you know, speak the truth in a way that would be liberating to them. There's a bridge we can build. However, we have to point out this is an utterly self-refuting philosophy. There's no truth. There, there is no truth except for my statement that there is no truth. That's a true statement, and you should hold to that one. Um, and again, nobody actually lives this way. Everybody believes, ultimately, that there is good and evil. Uh, one of my first seminary professors, a big guy, 
him more. He was having a conversation with a young Jewish atheist guy who was spouting off, there is no such thing as right and wrong. There is no such thing as good and evil. And so as they were having the conversation, the guy had a really expensive fountain pen, you know? And so TM reached out and picked it, he said, and put it in his pocket. And they kept talking. And then as they finished the conversation, TM started to walk away. And the guy said, excuse me, you, you got my fountain pen, and it's really expensive. And TM said, no, there's no right and wrong. It's my fountain pen, because I'm bigger than you are. And then the guy said, uh, TM said, he put it back in the guy's pocket. That's a hard philosophy to live with. See, we like to say things. The question is, can you actually live this way? And people cannot live complete relativism consistently. It's not possible um, that we do this. So uh, we, and, and apologetics, are bringing that out to show them that you actually do believe there is right and wrong. And much of our culture now that proclaims there is no right and wrong. I mean, and I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes for sexual revolution, but you remember Hollywood for years and years and years proclaimed there was no right and wrong on sexual behavior, and then Me Too. So there is right and wrong. Oh, okay. So then this first statement was utterly wrong. Because usually what it is is I don't want to take the time to debate with you as to whether this was right or wrong or not, so I just said the category of right and wrong is off limits. You can't do that. Or it's your truth versus my truth. But we don't, you know, if we were to step up on top of the roof here and jump off and say, my truth is there's no gravity. And, and you recognize there is the truth. It doesn't matter whether I acknowledge it or not. Uh, that there isn't different forms of truth like that. So it's important for us to communicate this to them and again, gently, respectfully, but when people are bringing up relativism like that, and very often it's gonna lead into the second question, the most common reason we've done that is, I want to live my sexual life the way I want to live it, so I want to say there is no such thing as right and wrong. That, that's been the real driving force behind relativism. That's where it wanted to get, but we have to gently keep prodding and asking people because they really don't live that way. If somebody, you know, defrauded them and drained their life savings shortly before retirement, they believe that's wrong. They really do. So, so then the question is, not is there right and wrong, but what is right and wrong? And now we're on a different debating thing. And so that's an example that you can look at and you can hear, but when we hear people you know, spouting that, we can build bridges, but then we need to start saying, but you're not living that. You're not actually going that way. Um, and if you look right now, I mean, for example, another thing that's going on in our current culture, and it's got its problems, but you've all been hearing about cancel culture. Uh, cancel culture. And I heard uh, Tim Keller quote, actually a tweet by a, a columnist from up in New York that said, never has there been a culture that so demanded uh, atonement and offered no possibility of forgiveness. And that's what cancel culture is. Now see, we can build a bridge there and say, see, first off, you believe there's justice because you're saying what this person did was wrong. 
Okay, well, then that means there must be truth. And by the way, you can't be a materialist then either. Okay, however, when you're saying that, but how does forgiveness work in here? Because you're saying that this is done, and might I point out that if what you're telling me is you've caught me with my hand in the cookie jar, and the only possibility is eternal oblivion, that does not encourage me to confess in any way, shape, or form. That just encourages me to double down. But notice, cancel culture has come back because we tried relativism, but it doesn't work. And so there's kind of this overarching thing back. And I would encourage you, actually, if you think about it with movies and stuff, um, one of the things that I've noticed is Hollywood very often gets the law. They get justice. They don't get the gospel. So if you watch movies, I, I don't recommend this, but there was that god-awful movie Noah with Russell Crowe a few years ago, which is so disappointing because I love Russell Crowe. Gladiator is one of my all-time favorite movies. But I went to the movie theater and it was going to be okay. And what got me was not the rock angels and all that kind of crazy stuff. It was that in the scripture, the point of the story of Noah is Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's a story of redemption. And if you remember, there's no redemption in that movie at all. Because Hollywood gets sin, wipe it out. They don't get gospel. They just don't. And you see it over and over again. Clint Eastwood has been wrestling with this for decades now in movies like Unforgiven. And he had the one Gran Torino that is really rough. But if you remember, you come to the end of the movie and the guy gets shot and he falls down in this thing of a cross. Because Eastwood's got nowhere else to go, but he doesn't really get the gospel. So the only way justice can come is in a blaze of bullets. Okay? But we can build a bridge when people are doing that and say, see, you do realize that there needs to be justice, but see, here's the problem. Man, if it's going to be absolute justice, eternal cancel culture, it's a big problem. Because if we're honest, see, and we can build a bridge by saying, look, I don't want absolute justice. Because <laughs> if it's absolute, I don't even meet my standards. I certainly don't meet my wife's standard, and I absolutely do not meet the standard of God. So how is that going to work? Because too often what our culture kind of did in the past was, well, it can just all be forgiven. Well, really? Then, then, then why me too? Why cancel culture? Why doing all this? You're certainly not just forgiving. Because somehow we realize that justice doesn't just act as if it didn't happen. So... All of this works in with this culture of radical relativism. We're kind of seeing it play out in front of us in our culture because you can't live that out. It's not possible. Now, a second area which flows out of it is the sexual revolution. Y'all may have noticed that we've rejected the biblical sexual ethic. And I'm using the broad phrase sexual revolution to mean everything from two people just having sex prior to marriage, to the homosexual revolution, to now the transgender revolution, the entire LGBTQ plus spectrum. Uh, all of that is part of it. And the only rule for sexual ethics now is the desire of the individual uh, and consent if it's going to involve other people. That's, that's supposedly the only rules that are there. Now, what's interesting is this whole idea, if you go back to the 1960s, included second wave feminism, which the original feminism 
was when did you get the right to vote? And many of the, the original feminists were actually like very staunchly pro-life and things like that. Susan B. Anthony, that's why there was a whole second wave of feminism because Gloria Steinem is a very different person than what Susan B. Anthony. So second wave feminism comes in. Um, the heterosexual revolution of the 1960s, okay? Which remember, when everybody was celebrating free sex, it was free sex as long as it wasn't homosexual. If it was two gay guys, well, we were still very strongly against that, okay? Then there was the whole gay liberation movement and now the transgender movement that has come in. Now, again, how do we respond to this? Well, first thing we can say is Christians can and should acknowledge that women, homosexuals, and others have often been mistreated, mocked, and ridiculed in ways that are unbiblical, okay? Um, I... I certainly have problems with, with areas of second wave feminism, but I want to tell you as a husband and a father of a daughter, the way women have been treated throughout much of human history is reprehensible. Men have just treated women awfully. In other words, feminism didn't arise out of a vacuum. It arose for a reason. And it does not hurt the faith for us to say, you're right. And even in, in countries that had been affected by Christianity, that was true. Now, Christianity is also obviously very liberating. Having traveled to many Muslim cultures, I would invite people who think Christianity is so oppressive to come join me in some of them and find out what it's really, really like because you can't even imagine. I literally had tears in my eyes riding down the road in places like Bangladesh and Egypt and Niger and Morocco, because the treatment of women is just, ladies, thank God every day you're here, is all I can say. So we can admit that, we can build a bridge. We can also acknowledge that historically our culture kind of winked, you know, Paul used that word. Hey, we can say our culture winked at male heterosexual sin. But if you were a woman who behaved in the same way, oh no, there, there were harsh, words that were spoken regarding you. And homosexuals were, were condemned in the harshest terms. But the reality is, read the list in like 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5. They're all listed in the same list. It's not like God says, well, boys will be boys. Mm, that'll get you in hell. That's what that will do. And we can be honest and admit, you know what? That was wrong. But the answer is not then everybody just do whatever they want to do. Because that's not true to how we were created. And so, again, as we sit down and we look at it, there have been huge glaring inconsistencies within much of the second, uh, within the, the march of the sexual revolution. For example, second wave feminism is built on the idea that men and women are different. Women know who they are. They have been treated wrongly for being women. We might start to see a problem already with our current culture. Oh, yeah, it's the exact opposite now. I mean, it's the exact opposite now. But that's what it was. Uh, in the original gay rights movement, and this was all the way down to the Obergefell decision at the Supreme Court six years ago that legalized gay marriage. How was gay marriage argued in? What was the basic argument? You're born either heterosexual or homosexual. It is hardwired into your genetics. 
we're getting evidence there's a gay gene. And if you are born with this, there's nothing, you don't have a choice in the matter. Now, if you're listening to the current transgender movement, that's the exact opposite. And this was not like 500 years ago. This is five years ago. This was what was argued because the entire philosophy is internally inconsistent. Everything has been shifting and changing. So in the modern transgender movement, biology means nothing. It does not matter that my body is full of cells with Y chromosomes, that I have a prostate, that I have certain male body parts. None of that matters. All that matters is what I believe I am, which is exactly the opposite of how the L and the G were argued in five years ago. In other words, they've just completely fucked. And actually, most people, I didn't even realize this until recently, originally the lesbian movement did not want to work with the gay male movement because they had very different ideas. And most of the lesbian movement was like, you guys didn't mistreat us forever. They only came together for political ends. That's the only reason that they did. And what's been interesting, there's been open war going on that we don't hear, only bubbles up occasionally. But I, I don't know if any, did any of you, have any of you seen the Fuhrer over some of J.K. Rowling, the yeah. author of Harry Potter? Her statements that have caused all kinds of Fuhrer. Uh, I actually just recently taught uh, on Genesis 1 and 2 in our church leading up to Easter, we were looking at what we call the freedom of limits. That freedom comes from embracing the way we're made by God. And I was dealing with some of this, and it was crazy. The very week that I was getting ready to stand up and preach, and I was going to be dealing with the LGBTQ plus movement, uh, an article came out, I think it was in Newsweek, and it was written by a person, Scott something, I'd have to, to look it up, but the person said, look, we should not be letting young children transition uh, and say that they're not what their biology is. That's a decision that needs to be held away. The person was called transphobic and all kinds of other things. And the person said, I am trans. I was born a woman. I now identify as a male. I'm still saying this is not what a 12-year-old ought to be deciding, okay? huge war going on and the whole community, Martina Navratilova, famous tennis champion, uh, you know, openly lesbian, has stated it's not fair to have women competing against trans, you know, men who've become women. It's, it's inherently unfair. It's been excoriated. So there is war within the community because it's internally inconsistent. That's points we can start to bring up. Are you arguing what you argue now? Or are you arguing what you were arguing two years ago? Because they're completely polar. I mean, it'd be as if, well, do you Christians believe Jesus was raised from the dead or not? You've changed your position on that. That would be a problem for us if we ever changed our position on that. Well, they have done exactly that, something that is core to the thing. We also can point out, how has the sexual free-for-all, how has that worked out in my culture? Has that worked out well for us? It's been a disaster. I mean, I hate saying it, but anybody who is shocked by Me Too, what, what planet have you been living on? This is obviously 
where this was headed. And I might point out the worst thing. I was just reading some statistics last night uh, in a book about college campuses and free speech and stuff like that. The sexual confusion among teens has skyrocketed in recent years, particularly for girls. And the rate for girls is like, I forget whether it's six or ten times more than what it is for boys. And with the consequence also, far, far, far higher incidences of attempted suicide by teenage girls. He's basically declared war on teenage girls with what's going on. Now, we have to be careful, but, but that needs to be brought up. Ideas have consequences. These are the ideas, but look how it's working in our culture right now. This is what is coming through and doing. And so I want to encourage you as we're doing that, you know, these are both areas that are very current. All of you are shaking your heads because it's not like I've never heard of this before. It's everywhere. But we do need, I want to go back to Peter's word, gentleness and respect. There needs to be not disgust, not mockery. We need to speak truth in love. And that does mean I've had to deal with a couple of families now where they've got grown children that have come out and declared they're transgender. And how to work through that. And one of the things I encourage them to do is Keep lines of communication open. Don't shut the, don't get don't get sucked into side battles. Okay, my personal opinion: I'm not fighting over pronouns right now. I'm fighting over your soul. That's what I'm fighting over. And I want to keep lines of communication open. Now we're going to have to go to biblical truth because God didn't make them male and female. He did. It's part of God's good design for us. Um, and he's given a context for human sexual activity. And again, that includes for heterosexuals. We need to be just as clear regarding that. But we do need to do it. But I want to encourage you, you know, when I bring up these two areas, it can sound almost depressing, doesn't it? Like, but take heart. This is what the church was born in. And we've survived. That culture faded and went away. And the church stood. Because it had the truth. Apologetics is ultimately saying God made the universe. His fingerprints are all over it. It really operates a specific way. And when you're running against the grain of the universe, don't be surprised when you get the splinters all up and down your arm. And in apologetics, we're pointing out, you know what, those splinters are there. You're running against the grain. If you go this way, it works so much. So that is all the stuff on the back sheet, because some of y'all asked, I've given a few resources, and it's in two groups, resources that practice cultural apologetics, and then resources that will help you understand our culture. The first one I had already mentioned, which is Mere Christianity, it's just a great example of seeing Lewis do exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, working and learning it. You know, some of the issues have changed, but it's amazing how current it is. Because Lewis saw where we were going. And I could have picked other works. Abolition of Man by Lewis is fantastic. His fictional works, which are basically his philosophical works. 
you know, the space trilogy is abolition of man. In fictional form, uh, you know, so so you've got all of, of that, that that Lewis has got there. Great writing. Francis Schaeffer is incredible, particularly his first four, The God Who Is There, Escape From Reason, He Is There, He Is Not Silent, and Back to Freedom and Dignity. Schaeffer comes in from a little bit different angle, but he's doing the same thing. He's looking at the culture and saying, this is where our culture is thriving, this is what's going on, and we need to be asking questions. And Schaeffer was known to be a master at sitting down with these young hippies that would show up at Labrie and just engage in conversation, find out what was driving them, and then just start pointing out all the inconsistencies. And so many people came to faith by doing that. And then another one is The Reason for God by Tim Keller, which is kind of like Keller says, basically, I'm just taking C.S. Lewis and kind of updating, but if you don't know who Tim Keller was, he was a pastor, planted a church called Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. In the late 1990s, everybody told them that's the dumbest idea they'd ever heard of. <laughs> Nobody in Manhattan wanted to go to church. The church actually grew to five or 6,000 people, mostly through conversions. And for years after his sermons, all these young urban professionals would stay after and fire questions at Keller, and he would answer them. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. I love Tim Keller. This book is basically him saying, this is the kind of questions I've been answering for years in Manhattan. I think it's 10 questions in the first part of the book. And then in the second part of the book, he says, now I'm going to kind of go on the offensive, and I'm going to explain why I believe Christianity. I, those, there I explained why your critiques were wrong. Now I'm going to explain why I believe Christianity is true and why I think things point towards it. So it's a great book for that. And then resources to understand our culture. Um, and actually, uh, two of these are audio. The first one is Mars Hill Audio by Ken Myers. Nothing has affected my thought more in the last 25 years than Ken Myers. I had the privilege of meeting him one time, and I told him, you know, I, I was joking and saying I was Ken Myers' junkie, and he heard me and said, you know, that 12-step recovery program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is an app you can download on your phone. Uh, there's free materials. He puts out every Friday. He puts out free materials. I just listened one day. But this is a deep dive at culture. He's not trying to ask surface questions. He's asking deep questions about our culture. What he's doing is he's interviewing authors, some of whom are believers, some of whom are not. But he's asking, what is the way of the modern world? And what are the assumptions that our culture is built on and are those assumptions true or not? So the one I listened to this morning was actually with a former poet laureate of America, and it was about why poetry was important, because one of his things is we, we've tried to reduce knowledge down to scientific knowledge. See, that's a deep problem. It's a deep problem. Uh, Ken Myers is really good at a lot of that kind of stuff. I, I find him endlessly fascinating, and he's great because he turns me on to other resources <laughs> that I then pick up and read. So, and, and it's wonderful because you can listen to it going down the road. I finished it this morning as I was driving here. Um, secondly, this is a daily one. It's The Briefing by Al Mohler. Mohler is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. He's a very conservative Southern Baptist guy. He's coming from a pretty conservative, not only theological, but political slant. But it's got the advantage of every day 
He's just opening up and saying, front page of the New York Times yesterday. Here's what it is. And it's a whole variety of things. Uh, the one from yesterday was a couple of obituaries. Um, you know, but he's kind of dealing with who the people were. What they're, so you're hearing kind of what's going on. He'll talk about Supreme Court cases or he'll talk about things. But he's trying to say, how does a Christian view this? How do we step back and think about this very current cultural event? So it's very different than marginal audio where he's not being driven by what's happening right now this moment, but trying to look at broad cultural trends very deeply. Al Mohler's just every day is about 20 or 25 minutes of him going through current events and looking at it. And then the last one that I would recommend, which deals, and this is the newest one for me, but The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Uh, this book is actually a bestseller right now. If you go out on Amazon, they'll list it as a bestseller. Uh, Carl Truman was uh, was a seminary professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, now teaches at Grove City, I think. Um, but this book, the basic introduction is, uh, today I hear regularly people say, I was, uh, I was a man born trapped in a woman's body. And Truman says, if somebody had told my grandfather that statement, my grandfather would not have even been able to understand what it meant. So how did we get from just 30 or 40 years ago, my grandfather literally could not have decoded that phrase, or you thought you were joking, to now I hear this daily. How did we get there? He goes all the way back to Rousseau, and he looks at a lot of key thinkers, and he's saying, how did we develop? Because what he's driving at is, this didn't happen again in a vacuum. We view ourselves in a certain way today. And the self is highly sexualized, highly psychologized, the therapeutic self, and the self is expressive. So if I internally have decided I was a woman born trapped in a man's body. Uh, I not only believe that, it's imperative that I must express that, and you must applaud me for expressing that, or else you're repressing my true self. Now, this is a, it's about a 450-page book. It requires some thought. I just kept seeing puzzle pieces come together that I was like, oh, oh, that does fit together. I now understand, I felt like I understood so much more about how we're thinking out here. And this is one of our tasks. Many of your neighbors, they haven't read this book, they don't understand that, because they may not have ever read a word of Freud, they may not know who Philip Reese is, who he talks about, or, you know, uh, Mark, Mark Hughes on the college campus. They may not know who those people are, but they're living their ideas all come home to roost. And the more we understand, the more we can start to ask questions. Why, why, why do you think that way? Why are you assuming that this is what it means to be a self? So that's just a few um, examples there that you can you can look at to try and equip yourself. So with that, I think we're, we're about out of time. Is there any questions you might want to throw out or ask? I know it's a lot of information. Sorry, it's a fire extinguisher here, but uh, yes, sir. You mentioned getting a copy of, of your notes mm -hmm. and your talk. Uh, how's the best way to do that? Well, I can, can, can I just, yeah. I'll, I'll email it to Rob, and it'll have everything that I, uh, that, that I said in it. And not to, 
pounded or whatever you want, but I did just finish for for Lent this year. We did six weeks in Genesis one and two, where I was kind of doing a little bit of cultural apologetics as well. And if you go to our website and our church, you can look that up. We called it the Freedom of Limits, and it's got actually like um, on the whole question of the sexual revolution. I mean, I did a week, you know, that God had actually made us body and soul, and you know, we groups that are defining, that are denying the reality of the soul, which is a whole other area we can go into, you know, the transhumanists, you know, we're going to download ourselves digitally and all this kind of crazy stuff. And then you got groups on the other side, the transgender movement is saying, no, my soul is what's real, my body's not real. <laughs> I can be whatever I want. And I got all the quotes and stuff out there, but we spent six weeks looking through and saying, again, it's kind of cultural politics. How did God make humans? I mean, that's an important question because our culture right now really believes in plastic man. I can make myself be whatever I want to be. Uh, no, you can't. Uh, no, you cannot. Are your messages on YouTube? Uh, actually, actually, they are right now because we, we live stream the whole meeting. They are on YouTube and you can find them. Um, and then you can also get the audio from our website or download it. So I'll, I'll send that along as well. You're welcome to get them, take them, use them, do whatever. But we did just do kind of a deep dive into this. That's why uh, Richard Clayton, who's not here today because he and his wife, his uh, uh, wife's dad had died when he got in LA. But uh, so Richard really wasn't going to be here because he's part of our congregation. So why do you ask him to turn away? Over the last six weeks, it's kind of a condensed version this morning. So, um, but yeah, so you know, I, I encourage y'all keep doing that, and I want to encourage y'all what you're doing here and being part of the program is great. It's it's so encouraging as a pastor when people take their faith serious and dig in. Sometimes people go, "I'm sorry to ask you questions. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what I live for. That you're like interested in this. It's so encouraging." So I appreciate y'all doing that and digging in. Yes, ma'am. Uh, maybe it's a weird question, but um, with being Russo's opportunities to share and all them, like there are harder reasons. Yes. Is there, because I know so much of their ideas have passed on, um, some good, some bad, or some misunderstood. So I'm kind of wondering if there's like a, well, and that's exactly what Carl Truman does in that book. He kind of goes through and does, and he also takes, there are three modern thinkers. Uh, there's a guy named Charles Taylor, a guy named Alistair McIntyre wrote a book I just read recently called After Virtue. He kind of uses them as the introduction because they're tough sledding as well. Truman is helping make that accessible. And he describes why he thinks Rousseau is the beginning of this rise of the modern self. And so in a few pages, you get the basic ideas of Rousseau, including, I mean, I, one of the things I learned, which became the introduction to my teaching a couple of weeks ago on Genesis 3, was I did not realize that, did y'all know Rousseau wrote a book called The Confessions, that a central story in it was he was cajoled by people to go down to a garden and steal asparagus. And the answer is, why did I do that? Society made me do that. I'm not the problem. If that's not taking the Augustine on, head on, exactly what he's doing. But no, Augustine, you you weren't the problem. The problem is out there. That's why our culture is where our culture is. Because our culture followed Rousseau, not Augustine. So 
So I think another tricky thing that we're handling, not only do we, are we engaging with biblically illiterate society, but also just illiterate society, mm -hmm. where we're only taking in images, we're taking in text, oh. we're taking in bites. Yep. And so to actually engage people with ideas yeah. assumes that they have ideas they want to bring right. to the table. <laughs> and so there is there might be a level of people somewhere who is you know putting mm -hmm. this out in there but our our neighbors and our you know yes that's so that's the tricky piece that i find you know without being coming at this level of scholarly look at you know yeah. captain or right you know or rousseau but I, I think that's one, and that is one of the challenges, and which I tell our congregation all the time. Most of the books I read, I would not even put in our congregation's hands, because it's probably it's like taking a baby and throwing them out in the Pacific Ocean and telling them to swim. Um, but part of what we need to do is to be able to understand those ideas, and then to try and poke and prod, because you are right. We live in an increasingly visual culture, which is a problem. This is, again, Ken Myers gets to a lot of this stuff, that martial audio, because I would challenge and say, you know, we're created in the image of the Trinity, and specifically the second Adam, who is the Word. Uh, deep resonation, and God created by his Word. And Adam names all the creatures with his I mean, word is essential, and we are living in an increasingly visual culture. And that is a problem. It's a problem I actually critique with other pastors and try to explain because we, we, we got all kinds of problems in our culture. We also, I mean, I'm preaching tomorrow in Psalm 1, just beginning a little short series on it. And in Psalm 1, we're told to meditate day and night. In this culture, you can't keep people's attention span for 20 seconds. Because Everything shifts and changes and works through and looks. And so we do have to think about that. And that's where we got to build the bridge. And that may go back to actually the very first question. Sometimes we're going to give a little bitty bites of food and say, we'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> and we'll do a little bit more because that's all they can take right now. I think yeah. just, just to your, your comment and really actually just brought something together, though, because in the first church, I mean, how many people were illiterate? I mean, just another reference back to, and Paul starting out with the idols, mm -hmm. and what keeps coming up in this conversation is um, the friend Simon Iceland, and the National Church took out a whole, a lots of images, a whole pictorial on their version of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny to find the picture of the other thousand words. Yeah. So we can start with text people in mm -hmm. back that subject to say that fashion of the second bridge. But the one that was pretty out there is Jesus in the dress with makeup and boots. And that was the National Church of Iceland for the children's Sunday school. And but you now they put that image out there, so you have an image to go to and say, I'm sorry, what? Right. <laughs> but anyway, but in a way that just kind of all connects though, is that as discouraging is, it may actually be even more freeing because we can, because words can be so confusing, but a picture, you can keep pointing straight back to a picture and an image. Right, and, and in and our culture, I mean, so many of our stories now, right. because like movies are a big way that yeah. things are done, 
at what's resonating in our culture and why is it resonating. I mean, you know, if you look at superhero movies now, you know, when I grew up in the 60s, superheroes, you know, you know, Batman, you remember, would be climbing up the wall, you know, and give you a little moral lesson while they climbed up the wall. You know? Now Batman's as flawed as the guy he's fighting. Well, that says something about our culture. What does that say? How do we respond? And those are things that we can go and talk to, whether they've read Rousseau or not. They probably watch the Marvel superhero movies, and we can make a point of resonation. You know, I'm actually... Our current series right now, and I'm not big on doing all this. My daughter helps me with these because I, I'm not a very creative guy. So I used to, the first time I taught First John, I called it First John. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter was like, Dad, Dad you got to come up with better titles. <laughs> you know, and then I'm like, I'm a Puritan. So First John, in which John lays out the doctrines of, you know, <laughs> we got to have like a word, you know. So, but I'm actually using right now, I'm looking at Psalm 1 and 2 for a few weeks. I'm calling it the way because I don't know if any of you have seen the Mandalorian. <laughs> this is the way. Okay? That's his phrase he's using. This is the way. This is the way. Which is interesting in our culture because you have a guy who lives by a code. He lives by a creed. He stands apart. And people are crazy. You know, and if you Google it, you look up and there's all these shirts now. Now, what's funny is, does our culture want to pay the price to live by a code and a creed? Well, no, we don't. We, 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 we want things that come easy, but we like to think we're the Mandalorian. Okay? So that's actually the introduction to my journey series. Tomorrow is, you know, the Mandalorian. This is the way. Um, so, you know, we, we can, you can look out there as a culture and ask what they're watching and then say, why are they watching this? What's resonating? And they oftentimes don't even know, but but they'll get in. And I've seen more conversation out of the mandible without one. This is the way. Why does that resonate in our culture? What does that mean? How do we talk about it? Because interestingly enough, what were Christians originally called? The way. The way. <laughs> so, let me tell you what the way is. Yeah. That's actually amazing. I was watching, um, back in the day, I was watching a lot of movies that were like vampire or werewolf oriented, and they were full of drama and romance and things, and repeated cycles of relationships are falling, failing mm -hmm. apart, failure, 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 and at the end of it, it was the whole Christian thing was about redemption. Right. The whole thing, and I thought, this is such a wonderful concept that no matter what you've done wrong, there is a hope. Of redemption, and I think that's the right. same thing that was instilled with Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. The, the, the sacrifice was laid down. A bunch of atheists got very angry at the J.K. Rowling at the end, and they said, This whole thing's a Christian morality tale. Yeah. <laughs> See, isn't that a terrible thing? You know? And, you know, no greater love than a man lays down his life for his friend, you know, when it, when it comes to But those are all points that we can go to, even if somebody is writing something that is not Christian, and they're not. There's still going to be those echoes and those points of resonation. So I'm not an expert at culture, but I do try to pay attention. I mean, I listen to music, I watch movies, I like reading things and trying to just say what people do. But with the idea, you're right, Kim, you know, I mean, I can engage with people because I've, you know, I've read City of God. You want to talk about City of God? But most people have not. But that, that's not really, but the reality is they're still dealing with the same questions. 
And like they are dealing with whether they even know that Rousseau stole asparagus and Augustus stole pears, they are dealing with why do I do the things that I do? And it's important for us to be able to tell them Augustine was right. Rousseau was profoundly wrong. And the further you go down the path of trying to blame everybody else for your sin and your problem, it's a jail. It's not freedom, it's a jail. So, well, I, I, we better go ahead and close. Uh, so, and if anybody wants, I guess, are y'all going to be on a break now or whatever? I'm just willing to hang around for a few minutes and chat if anybody needs to and uh, do that. So, can, can I pray real quick? Father, we thank you just for a time to be able to share together. Lord, I, I thank you for just the eagerness of everybody here, Lord, and what they're learning at the Fellows Program. Lord, I pray for your blessing on the C.S. Lewis Institute, Lord, worldwide, but especially here in Annapolis. Father, I marvel at your grace that in our little community, Lord, you brought the Institute here, and Father, all this is going on. Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to just teach and speak to each one of us. Father, we want to be able to engage our culture, uh, Lord, with the saving truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, not so we can win an argument, not so that we can get our way or gain political power. Father, we want to because there is no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray you make us students of your word and your truth. Give us compassion and understanding of the culture around us and what's motivating our neighbors. Lord, that we might be able to speak to them and point them toward uh, your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace, for being here with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.